our friends at Unladylike 2020 are convening a Where Are the Women Summit to investigate why women are vastly underrepresented in U.S. history and social studies curricula. The Where Are the Women Summit will provide teachers and parents access to the educational resources they need to make sure trailblazing women are taught in social studies classes. RSVP at unladylike2020.com and join the conversation on YouTube Live Saturday, February 13th from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. We want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode. Today, we are going to talk about how most people don't learn women's history because we didn't get there in time. And <laughs> we're going to talk about the Fabulous Five, which is not a name that anybody actually calls these people. Uh, I'm pretty sure that that's a basketball team at some point. But yeah, I think if we're rebranding humans, we should probably let them know. These are the five women from New Hampshire who sat in all of the positions of power oh. in 2012. Okay. I love that. Let's get into it. Here we go. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50% the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Episode 29. We didn't get there, and the fabulous five. All right, 29. I mean, we're on the cusp of maturity. <laughs> Almost there. Almost 30. 30, 30. Um, well, this is exciting. I I feel like I need a pop quiz, though, on these women. Okay. I feel like I know most of the names. Well, but let's start with some information, though, okay. that's very important. And I also want to tell our audience that at the end of this episode, they are going to hear from one of these fabulous <gasps> five members, the Senator Maggie Hassan, who, for those out-of-staters who aren't in on New Hampshire politics... Yeah, those not in the know. Those not in the know. Maggie Hassan was a vice presidential consideration She's by amazing. the Mr. Joe Biden. Um, and, you know, is a white woman, so was not further considered. Um, but also, Kamala Harris is pretty awesome, so. Yeah, and Maggie Hassan is pretty controversial on some conservative topics, too. Yes. So, may not have jived with a lot of, of Joe's peeps. Yes. It is interesting because I, in talking to her, got very nervous that I needed to call her Senator Hassan, but I feel like in New Hampshire, we all just call her Maggie, and I don't know if that's acceptable or if we're just rude. Because well, she's not the queen. She, I, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if you're, you don't necessarily need to go with formal etiquette. It's true. It's... <laughs> Also not a doctor, so <laughs> I don't know what other U.S. titles, you know, really carry that much clout, but yes. I also think that because she wants to be known as a local yes. person and a local citizen, and um, she enjoys being called Maggie, so I don't think you would have yeah. gone wrong there. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so um, I want to start first with the reason why women's history is left out, because I don't know if many people know about this huge barrier that was broken in New Hampshire politics, um, and I definitely don't think that most New Hampshireites even are aware yeah. of this okay. major thing that happened within all of our lifetimes. And, um, and I think a huge reason for that is because history curriculum is there's so much. Yeah. And I, like most history teachers, struggle to get to, so by some like definitions, mm -hmm. history is everything, so anything that was within the last 20 years is current events. Oh. And so, and that's just, uh, that's the definition that like the National History Day program uses. And, um, and the, the idea is just that like those things are still playing out. And so we don't really know the legacy of those events until. So 1990, sometime. still current. <laughs> uh, no, 2000, girl. Oh, I'm bad at math. Well, yeah, I think we also just like wish 1990 was that because it makes you feel old. 
Well, someone said this to me the other day, and I was like, ew, I'm so old. <laughs> that anyone who's now 21 or younger has a two, <laughs> not a one. So yeah. as soon as they see the one, they know that we're over 21. Yeah. 19 anything. Yeah. Nope. Nope. Sorry. Um, so, yeah, so 20 years. And so, you know, that means that history teachers today, really, if you're responsible for the latter part of U.S. history, you yeah. need to be getting to 2000, to 9-11, and... Um, yeah, and, and talking about why that's so significant. Right. And if you're not, then you're leaving out a lot of mm. a lot of women. Uh, and I think that's the that's the tricky part is like and so so for me, if in my classes, I feel like I had a really great year if I got to the Gulf War and the fall of the Berlin Wall Whoa. and like so that, the 80s, the 80s. And, <laughs> and so like I still have another decade to go to actually even hit the the like minimum bar. And then I would argue that if you cut out current events, unless your school has a current event class. Yeah. Who's covering them? Who's who's teaching kids about the stuff that will like as, as important as a lot of topics are. Yeah. Like, you know, the civil war or world war two or the civil rights movement or all those things. Yeah, We're not saying that past isn't important. Obviously this is a history podcast, but but current events are the things that help kids understand how they can impact the present. What relates to them. When you teach about the civil rights movement, what the kids need to understand is that that movement's still going. Very right? strong. That this is still happening. That there are leaders right now. And the Black Lives Matter founders are From, women. Yeah. <laughs> right? And like those things, they need to they need to be taught with the extension of those ideas. And yep. you do have to draw yeah, it to all the, the evolution of, of those past moments of you the, have where to they're bring at it up today. To the present. So the the not only is that just good in like practice as mm-hmm. an educator, but it's also a way that you can m- include women because you know you think about the first woman to be on a vice presidential ticket um, in a major political party. That's the 1980s. So okay. if you don't get there, you don't have women on in any of these top positions and you're systematically leaving them out and it confuses kids because then they go okay well so I guess women just like like they passed these laws in the 60s and it just like eventually happened and it's like (laughs) no like no the struggle bus was real the struggle bus was real and and women like Shirley Chisholm you know like these women are working crazy hard to to break these barriers into our lifetimes yeah and that there's this general lack of appreciation for the The struggle the current struggle or maybe the recent struggle to to make those things happen um so I kind of love that there's just going to be this next generation of girls who just never know it necessarily that there weren't women in office. Oh, yeah. That is kind of nice. It is. I mean, they'll know it from their history classes, but they won't know it in their lifetime. Right. Yeah. Pretty cool. It's really exciting. Um, But so I think this idea that like teachers don't get to the end is Mm. really problematic. And I think for history, we're responsible for themes, you know, like you should teach wars, you should teach economic history, labor well, history. Well, yeah, like, how far back do you go, and then how far forward do you go? Right. To and get it all in. To get it all in. And, and you know, and this is why we have 12 years, so it should be spread out, you know? Like, <laughs> like I don't teach Greek mythology, because they do that in elementary school, yeah. you know? And, and so you do need to have a really comprehensive scope and sequence, but kids need those current events mm-hmm. to understand the world they're about to step into. And... You know, what, you know, if you talk about what liberalism looks like in the 1960s and then don't help them understand, I mean, I think it's really, I always show when I'm teaching the civil rights movement, like, and we just had Martin Luther King Day, the percentages of people who opposed Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. and the, you know, and the percentages of white people in particular, because I teach to a mostly white group of students yeah. that oppose Martin Luther King, this person that we like put up on a pedestal now, right? Yep. In his time, that wasn't the case. Right. And so helping kids see, I love that because it puts in perspective the negative 
things that we're seeing about like Black Lives Matter. Right. Right. It's like, okay, so so they're doing what Martin Luther King did in his time. And the difference to me is not much when you look at the the polls of right. American yeah. citizens. Um so it's pretty it's pretty cool to help them make those connections. Bring it all yeah. the way forward. That's awesome. Um, but we got to teach women's history and we got to do that by getting there. You have to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Get to the time period where women were allowed to be in office. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about this group of five women and how they came to be there. Okay. And when we talk to Maggie Hassan later in the episode, one of the things she talks about is how there were many women that came before her and, like, of course she gives credit to those. Ahead. Of course she does. So Gracious woman she is. <laughs> so when it comes to state and national politics, um, there's a couple really important seats that women need to break barriers on. And these are the top executive positions. And we mm-hmm. just saw Kamala Harris, the first woman to be in a national executive position. Right. And so, and, and granted, we've had women in the cabinet, um, but those are like second tier to president and vice president, right? I mean, if the president goes down, the vice president's president. That's right. the closest we've ever been. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in state and local politics, it's the same, right? right? There are lots of states that send female representatives to yep. Congress. Um, and granted, it's way not like the percentage it should be. Um, yes. But there are even fewer states that have female governors and even fewer states that have had a female governor and then repeated that. Right, yeah. So... Um, so the governor and then the delegation that the state sends to Washington, those are the top positions that we need to be really eyeing and making sure that there is equity and equal access to those positions. Um, and so while New Hampshire was not the first state to get any women into any of those offices, we were the first state to have an entirely female delegation. So our, we have... Uh, two senators, like everybody else, and yeah. then two representatives as a portion of our population, and then the governor. Right. So those five seats were all filled by women in 2012. <sighs> it was fun. It was a good time. So, um, so the first of these major seats that women took control over was the governor positions. Mm-hmm. Um, 20 out of our 50 states have never had a female governor. Did you know that? 20? 20 of 50 states. That seems states. really high. Yeah. It's a lot. Are they mostly Republican states? Um, <laughs> mostly Southern states. So, yeah. Um, two women previously um, filled in the duties of governor in the absence of leaders. So there were, like, weird situations okay. that happened in those states, and women were Stepped there in. for, like, a day or two days or a week. And so those are kind of the funny um, first. So 1924... Um, Nellie Taylor Ross of Wyoming, um, she was the widow of the late governor. Yes. Yeah, and she became, she was elected on November 4th, 1924. She was like a badass, wasn't, we should talk about her sometime. I know, so cool. Yeah, she's like, you know how we talk about women from the Midwest and them having to like step in and do things because there was no luxury to not. Yeah, Um, Midwest, yeah. Her story's real baller. Okay, so she... I think it's really interesting because both she and the other woman elected that year to a governorship in um, Texas, both of them got in because of their husband's fame. And I thought that was a really weird, like, monarchy thing that was going on. It is, but it's not surprising. Yeah. I guess it's like, oh, Hillary Clinton comes to mind. Yeah, Yeah, well, and, you know... That's kind of like what you see. It's like if you just stand by him now, it'll be your turn next kind of thing. And so like a lot of these women get these men elected and help them get into office. And it's like, move over. You now have to make room for me too. Miriam Ferguson of Texas. This is a very interesting thing that I was like, whoa, loophole. Her husband had been the governor previously. Mm -hmm. And he had been impeached and removed. (laughs) (laughs) And so she ran for office, and they got back in the governor's mansion. And I thought that was fascinating. That that's allowed. Yeah. Well, your I guess you personally don't get impeached as a wife, right? But that's your family. I don't know. That's that's a little dicey. It was interesting. 
Um, so I don't know. I just think it's fascinating that the first women to get into governorships did it through their spouses. And yeah. that, that connection obviously is really important. Um, so the record for the most number of states to have female governors at the same time is nine. So in okay. our, in the history of the United States, only the, the like out of out of the 50 states at any one time, only nine have had female governors. So that's not even 50%. No. Like, like that's, not even, that's not even a quarter, right? Like, this right. is crazy. So so I, I just think that's wild, that this is such a clear, like, barrier. That yeah. it's like, why are executive offices so difficult to see women in? And I think a piece of it is it's so much power. Right. It is. And I mean, just getting women to think that they could be qualified to run is like step one problem, because I bet if you pulled up resumes of most of the women that ran for governor and a resume of most of the men be very different experience backgrounds. And I bet a majority of the women have JDs, if not doctorates, like it had to be highly educated, almost overcompensating for being a woman. Yeah. Yeah. Alabama, Arizona, Connecticut, and New Mexico are the only four states to have elected female governors from both of the major parties, which okay. I thought was interesting. Um, Arizona was the first state where a woman followed another woman as governor. So um, they were Go Arizona. It. I know. Good job, Arizona. Um, only three women from ethnic minorities have ever been governor. Only three women in all of American history. Whoa. That's surprising yeah and i mean like the five the fabulous five that we're about to talk about all of them are white women so true yeah um so i think that's a theme that we'll see but also what is it 93 percent of new hampshire is white so you know there's that yeah there's that and think about the demographics of women who are allowed to go to college in certain demographics you know so there's all there's a lot of data that goes into why probably there's mostly white women in power yeah um which is unfortunate and right. hopefully we'll shift in our lifetime. So that's the backdrop to our first woman in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Okay? She is... It's 1996. 96? Jeez. Things are... I don't, I'm not sure what's going on in 1996. My sister was born in New Hampshire in 1996. Wasn't it when that teacher had um, the affair with her student that made all the news? Oh. Wasn't that 96 or 98? I, do we want to rehash that? Ah, uh, let's not. But teachers that, that, that was, do that make me lose my marbles. But that was like the big thing that New Hampshire was known for because she's like the only inmate. Um, oh, interesting. Was that in 96? Ah, oh, now I gotta look at it. Okay. Well, <laughs> in better news, <laughs> Jean Shaheen, uh, which is like the name. I mean, like if you want name recognition, names. Jean Shaheen is the way to go. Is, Talk about a great campaign name too. oh my gosh it's not like her name's like barbara cookie it's yeah. like jean shaheen it yeah. just rhymes it rhymes it's perfect jean shaheen is elected governor in 1996 she is new hampshire's first female governor which by is no by no means a national record okay um she is re-elected in 1998 she's elected again in 2000 okay and um she was Technically not the first woman to serve as New Hampshire's governor, but she was the first woman elected to be a New Hampshire governor. In 2002, she decided to run for the United States Senate, and this was an unsuccessful. So she stopped being the governor after, you know, her time doing that and wants to be now the first woman to, um, this would be the first woman to represent New Hampshire at the national level. Right. And um, she runs against Republican nominee John E. Sununu, which for anybody in New Hampshire right now, this is our current governor's brother. Right. Okay. And, and their, their dad, yeah, their had, dad had been long time in politics. So this is sort of like the, the Kennedys of New Hampshire. Well, except they're Republican and they <laughs> own the everything Waterville Valley Ski Resort. And they're apparently allowing uh, the first responders at the ski resort, the the lift, you know, what are they called? The, lift attendants? No, no, the... Ski patrol. Ski patrol to get their vaccines before teachers. But anyway, 
you know that your governor owns a ski resort when that happens. <laughs> well, he's very for private business. Yes, he is. Private schools. And apparently not keeping schools open. <laughs> but he did he did talk in a conference recently of why he made that determination and he does feel the schools in New Hampshire have been really safe, which mm. is interesting. Yeah. I mean, and so when he did like a risk analysis, he basically was like you're not high on the risk scale because teachers are doing a great job of keeping students healthy. I'm like, uh, nice backhanded compliment of why they're not <laughs> getting their vaccines. But, uh, okay. Okay. So, Jean Shaheen, 2002, yeah. runs against, uh, the John E. Sununu. Yep. And she loses. Keep in mind, this is in the backdrop of 9-11. We have a Republican president. We right. are declaring war. People are we... gun crazy. Yeah. Um, looking back at the 2002 race, she blamed some of her loss on an unpopular tax policy that she had had as governor. Mm. She um, had tried for a long time to try to get a capital gains tax. And if you're not familiar with New Hampshire politics... Um, we don't have income tax. Right, which here. is a big reason why people move here. Yeah, a lot of people move here. Um, Your money goes a long way. <laughs> yeah, we don't have sales tax on, right. mi- like, anything, right? Nope. Yeah, so that's why people come here and buy alcohol. Like, we have liquor stores on Grocery the highway. Stores, like, come over the border from all the other states to buy items and goods here. Yeah, so she tries to put in a capital gains tax, a sales tax, and an income tax to try to um, raise more money for schools. And um, she's the first New Hampshire governor in 38 years to not pledge for her final term that she wouldn't institute new taxes. Now, she wasn't successful in getting those taxes uh, Mm -hmm. through, but she made clear that that's what she wanted to do. And... Um, so people, when she's running for Senate, are sort of like, hmm, not sure what we think about you. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this is the live for your die state, and so... They really don't like when big government comes in. Yeah. So, had she won, Jean Shaheen would have been the first New Hampshire woman elected to national office. Um, but... Because she lost in 2002, another woman enters the stage. Another person that people from New Hampshire should also know right now, which is Carol Shea Porter. Oh my gosh, her signs were just everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> my mom's maiden name is Porter, so we just see it at all. <laughs> oh, <laughs> just yeah. like be driving around, you're like, oh my God, so many signs. Porter. So in 2006, Carol Shea Porter. Um, runs for the House of Representatives Mm -hmm. to represent um, New Hampshire. She's from the Seacoast region of New Hampshire, which is where UNH is. And um, she was a prominent active, very different from Jean Shaheen. She was an activist, and um, she had once been taken away from a Bush rally wearing a turn-your-back-on-Bush shirt. Um, she was later encouraged <laughs> by Democratic colleagues to run for the state representative. And in 2006, she became the first New Hampshire woman to represent the state in Washington. Nice. So she snaked it from Jean Shaheen. Good for her. Good job. Um, There's room here for everybody. Yes. <laughs> so she held that seat. Uh, from 2007 to 2011, and then um, she constantly went back and forth running against a former Manchester mayor, Frank Ginta, and so the two of them went back and forth controlling this um, uh, representative seat, and so she was in that seat 2013 to 2015 and 17 to uh, 2019. Um, He officially retired, right? I think so. Because what's... It's a new Manchester mayor. She beat him. Oh, I don't know. She's like the first female mayor of Manchester. Oh, good. that's cool. Yeah. Didn't Any. know it. Um, so in the most recent election, she announced that she was not going to run again, and she was replaced by New Hampshire's first openly gay representative, yes. Chris Pappas, who's representing us now. Um, so while all of that was um, pretty interesting... Um, Going back to Jean Shaheen, Jean Shaheen is reflecting on that 
initial loss mm-hmm. and trying to, you know, figure out, what's figure next. out a new yeah. a new campaign strategy. And in the meantime, um, a lawsuit breaks out. And two GOP members were convicted of crimes related to jamming um, ballots uh, in the 2002 election that she had lost. What? And so maybe that contributed to her loss. And so she... um, she serves as the director of the Harvard Institute of Politics in yep. these sort of inter, uh, in between years. And in 2008, she defeats Sununu in a rematch and yeah. takes him down. And she has been the senator of New Hampshire ever since. And so she became the first New Hampshire female senator representing okay. us at Washington. So it's her and Carol Shea Porter intermittently yep. um, uh, representing us in D.C., Okay, so in uh, 2011, New Hampshire sees its second female senator, Kelly Ayotte. She's a Republican. Oh, man, Kelly Ayotte. Yeah, and so she worked as a law clerk for the New Hampshire Supreme Court before entering private practice. Um, She was a prosecutor for the New Hampshire Department of Justice and then briefly served as the legal counsel to New Hampshire's Governor Craig Benson. Uh, who was was governor after Shaheen. Um, so before returning to the Department of Justice to serve as a deputy attorney general of New Hampshire. So she has this long resume oh, yeah. that like definitely positions her to do this. Um, and you were talking before about, you know, ex- male executives needing, oh, yeah. needing that resume. Well, Kelly Ayotte has definitely been a name that is on a lot of people's minds every time, like, the presidential election comes up. You always think that she'll come back. Like, yeah. she's certainly someone that would try probably yeah. eventually in her lifetime to run for president. I've met her many times. She's so professional. Uh, she's so good. Very with well students. spoken. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed talking with her. And one thing that I really appreciated about her is despite being um, a Republican and Jean Shaheen being a Democrat, mm-hmm. both of these women made a very concerted effort to work together right. and yeah. collaborate. And they both, whenever I met with them, talked about that relationship that they had, which I thought was really nice. You get it done. Work together. Yeah. (laughs) So she gets appointed Attorney General of New Hampshire, and um, she became the first and only woman to serve as New Hampshire's Attorney General, serving from 2004 to 2009. And um, She did a ton around drug reform. Yes. That was kind of her big mission in New Hampshire. We have a huge opioid issue. Right. And she did a lot of work around that. She's... A oh, yeah. Well, and it's interesting, our current governor carries on a lot of the work that she put into place. Um, so, 2009, she resigns as Attorney General and pursues a bid for U.S. Senate. And she, um, Judd Gregg, who had been a three-term incumbent in, yep. the, in the Senate seat, announced his retirement. And he was a conservative, and so she sort of, like, slips right into yep. filling that conservative seat and wins. Um, enter Annie Custer. I love Annie. I do have a really funny story about Annie Custer. So Please tell. This summer, I, I was... I probably have one very similar. <laughs> this is, like, such a New Hampshire story because, like, only in New Hampshire do you, like, randomly bump into politicians in, yes. you know, anywhere, presidential candidates, you know, whatever. Oh, my God, yeah. I saw Bill Clinton at the Lucky Dog. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. It's like, what up, former Mr. President? <laughs> so, um... I'm sitting on I'm sitting on Squam Lake um, this summer, and yeah. Squam Lake this beautiful. Everybody knows Winnipesaukee, which is well, great. Well, Squam Lake is like it's famous for a movie that was filmed there forever and ever In ago. In Golden Pond, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but it's like beautiful, and it's near Winnipesaukee if you need geography. But anyway. I'm sitting at the library waiting for my husband to show up. They were out on a boat somewhere. Yeah. And I'm sitting there stealing the Wi-Fi from the library. Shocker. And, yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm sitting across from this lady. She's wearing, like, a hat and sunglasses. And we're both, like, you Just know. Just chit-chatting. Chatting. And then finally she, like, takes her sunglasses off and she goes, so I'm Annie Custer. <laughs> I love that. So I was like, oh my gosh, much. you're so cute. I met her when she first ran, um, she was running her first election. She was at the Plymouth Senior Center doing a talk. Mm-hmm. 
it was so hot. It was like 90, 100 degrees inside the senior center. And if you've ever been, it's an old train station, so there's yeah. no AC. Oh my gosh. So it was just like all these like warm bodies just standing next to each other, Stewing. sweating, listening to her talk. And she was just like, it's fucking hot in here. <laughs> Did she say that? <laughs> and I was like, vote. I'm voting for you. <laughs> like, who's going to swear in front of old senior citizens? I'm like, this is the best. And her campaign manager was like right near me, like close to the door. And he's like, are you fucking kidding me? And I was like, yes. I yes. love this team. That's hilarious. She's great though. She's at so... She makes a point to get to so many small local events that just like yeah. don't get championed very often. And so it's great that she like really gets behind a lot of those things. So it's interesting because all of these women came to their positions in very different ways. And oh, her sure. path to uh, running for representative is she was a career lobbyist in New Hampshire, which I don't, I did not realize. I didn't know that. And um, apparently she never uses that word and doesn't like that word. Um, so Interesting. She, yeah. Um, she didn't, she uh, got involved uh, with Big Pharma in New Hampshire. And, um, and so she was actually like lobbying on their behalf, okay. uh, despite the opioid crisis that we're having yep. in our state. And so that's one of the, the interesting sort of, uh, scandals, if you will. Um, and so she lobbied against getting some drugs that are often used, um, as like date rape, um, date rape drugs. Um, she was, she argued that they should be legal to possess and which I thought was really bizarre from a woman's rights and like other. Yeah, but she definitely stands on access to healthcare Mm. No matter what that is. So I'm wondering if that has something to do with it. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? Um, but she was one of the first people I knew in New Hampshire that got behind Planned Parenthood when that whole firestorm was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, which I was like, you'll always have my vote. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though I don't get to vote for her because she's not in our district. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do get to vote for Chris Pappas, which is nice. Yeah. So she runs for the House of Representatives in 2010 and lost. But in 2012, she went back for a rematch <laughs> against Charles Bass and won. Okay? So, Charlie Bass. Charlie. Charlie Bass. Okay. Yeah. I'm with you. So if you are thinking that New Hampshire was immune from sexism, because look at all these women I that mean, are just like the story rising. you're lining up, I'm yeah. like, definitely immune to sexism. Okay. New Hampshire. So 2014, she runs for re-election against uh, Republican State Representative Merlinda Garcia. Okay, so here's a woman running against a woman. And in October of that year, the state, one of the state representatives, um, Steve, oh gosh, Valencourt, a Republican, compared Garcia's looks favorably uh, to Custer's in a blog post. He said, quote, let's be honest. Does anyone not believe that Congressman Annie Custer is, is is as ugly as sin? And I hope I haven't offended sin. Period. End quote. Yeah. That was said. Let's put a picture of him on the website. Yeah. Judgment for all. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, gross. So one thing that I really appreciated about Marlinda Garcia, the Republican who's running against Annie Custer, was um, she replied in a statement that his comments were, quote, sexist and have absolutely no place in political discourse. Yeah. Get it, girl. Custer beat Garcia 55 to 45. Good race. That's a good race. Yeah. So, as of 2012, New Hampshire has had an all-female delegation to Washington. Yep. Okay? Enter Maggie Hassan. Oh, so cool. Here she comes. Hassan ran for uh, state senate, and she lost. And then she won two consecutive terms. So, ladies, if you're wondering, should I run for office? The answer yes. Is yes. Yeah. And you might lose. But then you might become Maggie Hassan, you know? <laughs> so, like, just do it. Okay. So, um, she won two consecutive terms. She became the majority leader in the state Senate, and in 2008, before losing uh, re-election in a 2010 rematch um, with Prescott. So, um, she declared her candidacy for governor in October of 2011, and um, she wins with Fifty-five percent of the vote, becoming okay. the the state's second female governor. 
Nice. So, in 2012, New Hampshire became the first state in the union to have an entirely female delegation and a female executive. But things got even juicier. Oh, do tell, do tell. Okay. She won re-election in 2014, and... In 2015, she announced her candidacy for U.S. Senate in 2016. She challenged incumbent Republican U.S. Senator Kelly Ayotte, and the race was considered one of the most competitive U.S. Senate races that year. It made national news. Yes, yeah, big time. It was a huge deal. And keep in mind, this is when Trump is running for office, and poor Kelly Ayotte, being a Republican, uh, didn't it bode well for her. Did not bode well for her. She was really stuck as a woman. Didn't trying... Trump not support her? Like, didn't say anything about her? Yeah, he. She didn't come to one of his rallies because she was like, I don't, I can't yeah. back him after all. After the the tapes came out um, oh, yeah. with his sexist comments about women, and she's like, I just can't do that. And so he. Like didn't basically throw his weight behind yeah, exactly. her, and and so I don't think that's the only reason. Maggie Hassan was incredibly popular governor, yeah. um, and so Maggie Hassan ran, and so today Maggie Hassan and Jean Shaheen are the two senators Amazing. from New Hampshire. All right, Brooke, let's take a little break. Okay, and we'll be right back. Awesome. For lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, go to our website, www.remedialherstory.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Through Patreon, you can sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to behind-the-scenes information, gear, and bonus episodes. Patreon allows you, the listener, to ensure that the shows you love continue. This episode is sponsored by our patrons, Kent and Jamie Heckel from Ohio, Leah Tanger from Connecticut, Sarah Reardon from New Hampshire, Barbara Tischler from New York, Mark Breyer from wherever his van has wandered, Jeffrey Ecker and Brooke Neva Sullivan from right here next to me. Thank you so much for your contributions to this podcast. You make it possible. Welcome back. <laughs> awesome. So this week I got a chance to sit down with the Senator Maggie Hassan. I mean, I'm so jealous. <laughs> but please tell me everything. I bet it was amazing. Well, it was a really just an awesome highlight to get her on the phone. We had an yeah, interview scheduled. she doesn't have a scheduled. ton of time. <laughs> no, and we had an interview scheduled actually for the Thursday after the Capitol attack. And so like obviously... <laughs> She's a little busy. She was a little busy that that day. So we rescheduled, and um, I was so grateful to get her on the phone, and I asked her how she was doing, and this is what she said. Um, well, I hope everything's going well for you in D.C. I know it's been a really wild time this last month, so I'm just yeah. grateful to get you on the phone. <laughs> well, thank you so much for that. Yeah, we're doing well and uh, trying to get a lot of work done now that we've got um, – you know, we've got constructive partner in the White House, so that's all always really exciting. So in the last week, this has been yeah. just such a, you know, the first week of the Biden new administration. New administration. They're doing a lot of cool things. Yeah, a lot of big, like almost like non-headlines sort of. Like it was just a very, it was interesting to, I don't know. Someone put something on Instagram. They're like, this is the first weekend um <laughs> In several years that our president isn't playing golf on the weekend. <laughs> yeah. It was like, oh, yeah, yeah. forgot about that. Amy Klobuchar posted that she felt like, gosh, I haven't had to respond to an angry tweet this morning. <laughs> how, how interesting. What a relaxing Sunday. Yeah. Um, so so anyway, it just just fascinating. And so I asked her what she thought about the election of Kamala Harris mm -hmm. in this last you know, week's historic oh, inauguration. Awesome. And this is what she said. Well, first of all, just on a personal level, Vice President Harris and I arrived in the Senate at the same time. And since then, she's become a close friend and a colleague. So I was both honored and just so excited to be 
at her inauguration and obviously the inauguration of now President Joe Biden, too. Um, you know, Kamala Harris's election is so important and historic for any number of reasons, but not only her being the first woman, but her being the first woman of color um, is really pivotal because women of color in particular have been underrepresented in really all areas where people exercise power, whether it's in government or the economy. And so to see her take on this role is a huge moment in our country's history. It's a huge reminder, too, that um, she will be focused on not only being the first woman, but certainly not being the last one in this particular role. And I really love the fact that she always talks about that focus coming from her own mother, that her mother would say to her, Kamala, you're going to be the first at a lot of different things. Your job is always to make sure that you're not the last. And when you just see the reaction of girls and women who can see themselves in Kamala Harris to her election and to her taking office, it is a reminder of how important role models are. It's a reminder of how important it is for every American to believe that they can exercise their talents and energy um, as they see fit and make a difference because of that. Oh, so... I just, I wish she said more. Like, oh. <laughs> I just want more Maggie. I know, I know. But I get it. There's a lot there. And I, I do appreciate her honoring, you know, this moment for oh women my gosh, of color. Yeah. And, of course. like, such a big deal. Um, so I asked her, um, also, you know, this has been a really big, and she she did a lot with the uh, Suffrage Centennial. Yes, And yeah. she posted some videos um, that are on YouTube, which you could check out, of her talking about the first woman who was able to vote in her family um, that she cool. knows of. And so those, those sort of things are out there. And... Um, and so I asked her what were her own reflections on the last hundred years of suffrage, and this is what she said. Yeah, I, I have had the opportunity over the last year, as we've had lots of different events and, and reasons to reflect on women's suffrage and the 100th anniversary, I've been thinking a lot, first of all, of how hard and long that fight was. Remember that when women gained suffrage, now a little over 100 years ago, they had been at this fight for decades. So it's important as a reminder to me that the important things that we need to do to make progress in our country, which is always about full inclusion, it's about bringing out the best in each other, uh, despite the barriers that may be there, uh, that the work is hard and that the fight can take a long time. So I have found that very inspiring. It's also really important to remember that as inspiring as this achievement was, um, finally giving half of the population or a little bit more than half the population uh, the right to vote, that it was an incomplete success because women of color weren't included. And so I think it's important that as we recognize what this anniversary means to women all over our country, we have to remember, too, that the success 100 years ago uh, was only a partial one and that the fight needed to continue until all women had the opportunity to vote and that as that fight has continued and as women of color have been included in our civic life, just as was true for women, uh, for white women to be included, uh, it really strengthens our country. Um, and my last reflection is just that um, it struck me that the the suffrage movement gained uh, the vote a hundred years ago during a pandemic. And while many people thought that the pandemic was going to shut down the suffrage movement, at least temporarily, because women were on the front lines in their communities and their families trying to fight the virus, uh, that women in the movement found a way to continue the movement and continue the fight, even as they took on these roles to fight the pandemic. And that's also what we've now seen 
in this pandemic, a hundred years later, women are leading, whether it's in their homes, in their communities, as public health officials, some of the first public health officials to speak out about the threat that the pandemic was causing, uh, were women. Um, governors uh, stepped up, women governors, to fight the pandemic and were some of the most effective at garnering community support for the kind of preventive measures that we know are critical to slowing the spread of the disease. And so when you think about this 100-year anniversary being bracketed by two pandemics and the roles that women played as they fought um, for the vote, and then over the last couple of years as women, as women have fought for, you know, they've run for office, but they've fought for equal rights and social justice in the midst of the pandemic, too, and been on the forefronts of managing it. Uh, it's really a reminder of the progress we've made, of the impact we can have, but also of the work we still have to do. So the last question that I asked her is about this history that mm-hmm. we just teed up. And I mean, here's a woman. She is the second uh, governor, female governor yeah. from New Hampshire. She's the second, or sorry, third uh, female senator from the state of New Hampshire. She's part of this first delegation, um, yeah, you know, all female delegation to to um, to represent New Hampshire. And it's interesting because, you know, I look at her as, and and all of these women as. Yeah. These barrier-breaking badasses who um, are doing some incredible work for the citizens of New Hampshire and setting examples. It's like... And showing girls that, like, like yeah. no girl born after 1996 will ever be like, I can't be governor. You know, like, that's so cool. And not only did we have Jean Shaheen, but Maggie Hassan was like, and we're going to do it again. You know? Right, she got reelected. like amazing yeah and and we have a second woman like it's so cool um and so I asked her I was like can you tell us what it's like like and I don't know if you see yourself as this but you are a woman breaking barriers and making history what does you can only imagine when she said like oh yeah no I just (laughs) just show up for work (laughs) oh my gosh this is what she said Well, I think I would start by just taking a step back because I really believe that our communities and our economy and our country are strongest when the decision makers are made up of people with diverse backgrounds and perspectives. And the fact that they bring different viewpoints to the decision-making tables has been really critical to solving problems. So the first thing I think we always have to remember about this is the kind of progress we make when, in fact, barriers are uh, broken. And I have always felt as if so many women went before me uh, to break down these barriers that I just was glad to have the opportunity to bring my perspective uh, as a woman, as as a mom of a son with disabilities, as a daughter of a World War II veteran, as a professional uh, who practiced law, I've just been really grateful to be able to come into these roles, earn the trust of voters, and do my best to make a difference, um, informed by those different experiences and perspectives that I have. I'm keenly aware that I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do these things if it weren't for the women who came before me, um, the suffragists that we just talked about a couple of minutes ago, uh, Jean Shaheen for sure, as well as so many of the women who ran for House and Senate in New Hampshire and our volunteer legislature before it was a typical thing. What they all did was make it much easier for voters to get used to seeing women in positions that historically had been um, occupied by men and for much of our history, exclusively occupied by men. And they also showed voters that women could do this well and that their different perspectives could improve the results that they brought for their constituents. I always have to think about the fact that 
Women, of course, still face some barriers in this work we do. Uh, you have to be conscious that there are stereotypes and biases that impact the way people perceive you. But we've come a long way as a country breaking down these stereotypes and bias. And as we've seen with the election of Vice President Harris, as we've seen with more and more women entering public service and earning the confidence of voters, uh, I just think that we are going to continue to move forward to be a more inclusive country and to address some of the challenges, uh, like right now with the pandemic, that are often overlooked if you don't have a diverse group of decision makers. Very cool. So very special to get a chance to sit down with her. And I'm just so grateful to her oh my team gosh, for yeah. making that happen. Really cool. Um, so in most states, uh, state history is taught in fourth grade. And so this week I have created a fourth grade. Oh, fun. I know, which is a little bit out of my, uh, yeah. my area. But a fourth grade lesson plan on what I'm calling and no one else is calling the Fabulous Five. <laughs> So for those Googling the Fab Five, they will meet the basketball team that it actually belongs to. So don't do that. But if you're looking for the Fab Five lesson plan by Kelsey Brecker. Uh, also known as Carol Shea Porter, Annie Custer, <laughs> Maggie Maybe Addison, you should Kelly call them the New Hampshire Fab Five. Yeah. Uh, really put a label on it. Because otherwise everyone's going to look at the ESPN doc. <laughs> They're going to be like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, no. It's good. They're cool. Very yeah. cool. So fourth grade lesson plan up, up on the for, website for the kiddos to check out. And <laughs> the kid coming in with the lesson plan. Can we do this today? <laughs> yes. <laughs> fourth graders, you're a new audience. Brooke promises not to swear. And I do not promise. <laughs> Turn away now. Go find your mother. <laughs> or father. Or, or co-parents, grandmother, whoever's in charge of your guardianship, <laughs> go see them and tell them you're listening to this podcast. Yes. And tell them that you shouldn't be. No. But teachers, hey, hey. there's a fourth grade lesson plan on the website. Yeah. Oh, Brooke, it's awesome to chat with you. I know. Always. Thanks, Kelsey. I'm Brooke Sullivan. I'm Kelsey Eckert. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.